0: Mattia Benotto, as the new team principal for Ferrari, how will your management style differ from that of the departing Maurizio Arrivabene? Well, as the former head of Scuderia's technical department, I hope to take a tighter control on the team's technical direction. You mean improvements in the powertrain? Yes, definitely in the powertrain, but a race car is, how you say, a fully integrated system of components that all work together, so I intend to review all the key elements. Having said that, there is one element in particular which fails more often than it should and will be replaced just as soon as possible. Do you mean the energy recovery system? No, I'm talking about something which in Italian is called Tedesco con uno stupido di e punta. What's that in English? Sebastian Vettel. Hello, I'm Gareth. He's Zog. Hello. And welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed series 15. Wowza that's ridiculous. Oh, and Finn is here Thank as you, well. Finn. Yeah, 15 years of podcasting, and we've got some special stuff lined up for later in the year. I'm not sure what yet. I'm we'll we'll about, figure something, something will happen. Yeah. Sure but if there's a policy to Gareth Jones on speed, it is to broaden our brief slightly, I think, for the future. Yes, Finn, we will. We're going to boldly go when no <laughs> one's gone before. And we're going to start now. By talking about space on the programme, but not just space, we're talking about cars, vehicles in space. Well, we're
1: talking about wheels yeah. boldly going where no wheels have been
0: before. There you go. Because as you have no doubt seen on the news, the Chinese state space programme landed a vehicle on the far side of yep, the moon. Yes, correct. Finn, far not side. The dark,
1: yeah, that, that was Finn butting in to say that it, it's not the dark side, it's the far side. Yeah. Quite correct.
0: Yeah, I'm fed up of people reporting yeah, it as a dark side. We won't side. Go on about that. Yet, but the point is that they actually have done something that no one has done before, gone where no one's gone before. We've never landed something on the far side of the moon. And the Chinese, whilst they're program is in some ways like the Soviet program of the 70s or the American program of the 60s in that they're reaching the moon. They're doing stuff that the previous moon travelers didn't do by landing on the far side. And it's kind of simple the way that they've done it. It's all about communication, isn't it?
1: One of the problems with doing anything on the far side is how you communicate with whatever you put there. Yeah. And we're not talking about sending people and doing anything that can be done autonomously under human control on the far side. Ooh. You've got to work these things by remote control and you've got to get data back. And doing that when you've got the moon in between you and your lander and your rover is something of a challenge. Yeah. And so before China landed Chang'e 4 and the U-2-2 rover... They put a communication satellite into a slightly funny orbit, not around the moon, but around a point in space on the other side of the moon called a Lagrange point. And it's basically a... Well, we'll try and explain what it is So a gravitational shortly, it's a-
0: mutual position, in a way, isn't it? Or it's a fixed gravitational point. It's what they call a halo orbit, as I understand it. In that, if you imagine, you draw a line from Earth to the moon... Yep. ...then expand that line into a it- cone so that the cone is greater than the diameter of the moon and the moon is within that cone then the halo orbit is the very end of the cone, the far side of the moon. So you're looking at the moon and you can see this thing orbiting around the far.
1: That's a pretty good way of Mm. describing it. As you say, when you have two bodies like the Earth and the moon, you have a couple of special points called Lagrange points in that Earth-Moon system, which are kind of, as you say, gravitationally stable, where if you put a satellite or a rock or a thing, it will stay at that point. If you draw a line, as you say, through the centre of the Earth and the centre of the moon, one of those points is on the opposite side mm. of the Earth than the Moon sits. So you know, opposite the Moon, other side of the Earth, there's one Lagrange point. Then there's another one in between mm-hmm. the Earth and the Moon. And then there's a third one on the other side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. And there's this halo orbit around that third point on the other side of the room, which is kind of like, if you could imagine blowing a smoke ring from the Earth past the Moon at the point where that smoke ring is at the same distance as that most distant Lagrange point, that's the orbit that you could put a satellite in orbit around that point and it will stay there with minimal correction. And you can use that satellite to then relay signals from the far side of the Moon Back to the Earth. That's
0: what I was going to say. Clever it's a stuff. relay.
1: So what's happening is that
0: the u 2 rover, Jade Rabbit is what That's it a, is yeah, in, U-2 in English. Right. U-2-2 communicates via radio to the lander. The lander operates as a relay unit up to the relay satellite in the halo orbit around the far side of the moon and actually the name of that relay satellite, hang on, it's, let me see if I can
1: say this right. I looked it up but I couldn't work out how to pronounce it so you're on your own here. Kwekyao, I think. Kwekyao. I don't Um, know. I'm not going to correct you. Um, I don't don't even know if that's correct. Not a
0: clue. uh, My grasp of Mandarin and quite frankly my grasp of Cantonese is... is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> rudimentary. <laughs> it's worse than my English. Yeah. So it bounces the rover to the lander, the lander to Qiao, and then Qiao to the ground station here on Earth. Enough respect to the Chinese for going back to the moon. As a child born in 1961, moon's really important to me. I was eight when they landed on the moon. I watched it happen live on telly. So anything that happens on the moon, for me, seems to have a greater resonance than just about any other space stuff at the moment. Mm. And this is not, of course, the first time the Chinese have been to the moon. They landed, did you know it was 2013, that Chang'e 3 landed on the near side of the moon, I think it was Mare Imbrium, and deployed the first U-2 rover, which was only designed to operate for a month, I think, 30 days And it did something like 31 months, I think. Let me just check that. I wrote something down here. I
1: thought it actually didn't last very long, because they had a problem with it where some of the wiring was damaged on some rocks, I believe, and they designed U2-2 to have better protected cabling. I didn't know that. Because U2 had only got about 110 metres or so away from the lander before it had this problem. It had what Um, they called a mechanical
0: control anomaly.
1: Right. But it forces offline and
0: it eventually came back at the end of a lunar night and then operated for 31 months Right, so so, so it managed to carry it after
1: it had the damage to the cables, but it was compromised in some way. Which um, is
0: incredible, you know, that's some achievement. Well, I mean, you you, you know,
1: even doing this stuff as close as the moon, you Mm. know, and the moon is the closest thing in space that isn't us. It's the closest other thing we can go and put anything on, it's the closest thing we can go and visit. And even doing stuff on the moon is hard. Yeah. It's hard to get stuff there and it's hard enough to operate it there. And you get an idea about that from... The Lunar X Prize. People may remember the X Prize, which was a prize offered for the first private company that could demonstrate a reusable space vehicle, which was won by. um, Virgin? Yeah, by by, Bert Rutan. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. by Bert Rutan's company, Scaled Composites, which is the technology that is the design that Virgin Galactic is. Using and is actually now getting quite close to uh, flying commercially, by the looks of it. Anyway, the Lunar X Prize was this similar idea that they offered, uh, however many million dollars it was, to the first private organization, private company, or group of people that could land any kind of rover on the moon and operate it on the moon, and Mm. I think maybe return a couple of pictures, but basically drop a lander on the moon and make it work. And a whole bunch of companies and groups were competing for this, but everybody fell by the wayside and basically they couldn't really do it. It's Um, tough. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, you've got to get a reasonable amount of mass
0: traveling pretty quickly to leave Earth orbit or unless you put it in a, what do you call those sort of orbits, the elliptical orbits that get bigger and bigger and eventually, after a 100 years, take in the orbit of, oh, yeah, what of you the mean, moon. Is that, is that a, yeah. um,
1: a Hohmann transfer orbit or Oh, I'd be very uh, impressed if it like is that. that. Yeah, well done, like
0: that. Yeah, so it's tricky getting there. I did discover that Audi have plans to put a Quattro, on the moon.
1: How much does a Quattro weigh?
0: Well, let me point out, it's not the Audi Quattro that you drive on right, Earth, okay, not okay, like the yeah. Ur Quattro yeah. or S4 Quattro, any of those. Now, it's a bespoke rover called the Audi Lunar Quattro, and it's well, go Audi, go yeah, ahead. electric, four-wheel drive, articulated legs, and they are planning to hitch a ride on someone else's launcher at some point. I think it was meant to have happened already, and so often with space stuff, it's been delayed and delayed. I don't know if it's still going to happen but the plan is to land it at tranquility really and it's got a camera okay. and they're going to send back live video which for once and for all will settle those ridiculous idiots who don't believe they'll well, say that it's not going
1: to settle it because if you are enough of a <laughs> it uh, <laughs> please you know beep that or substitute another word but you know if you are enough of a fool if you are enough of an ignoramus to seriously think Mm -hmm. that the moon landings didn't happen... This isn't going to convince you. True enough, I see the point. You know, but needless to say, wouldn't it be wonderful to see live
0: video from the moon? Absolutely. To see Tranquility now, some 50 years after it
1: happened. Well, I mean, maybe they will be hitting a ride on a Chinese rocket, maybe. I mean... I'm mm, um, not sure. I don't know. I'll have to look into that. But it's exciting, Audi on yeah, the moon. Yeah, Well, it, maybe it'll be a SpaceX launch.
0: Mm, possibly. Because They're getting good, aren't they? Yeah. In fact, SpaceX are about to launch a Falcon 9 With the first unmanned test flight, sorry, uncrewed test flight Um, of the Crew Dragon. And that's going to happen, I think, in the next three weeks because they rolled it out to the pad and then took it back into their processing facility. They're getting it ready for launch. I mean... We're so close to proper, private, orbital human space flight for the first
1: time. And also the Boeing Boeing Starliner gets to fly, doesn't it, later this year? I think they're kind of in the final stages. The stuff that they still have to do before they fly is various kind of safety and sort of procedural testing of one kind or another, making sure that they're confident about how they can recover it Mm -hmm. from the ocean. Mm -hmm. They can recover it after the capsule has splashed down because NASA or no US private space company has done any recovery of crude <coughs> capsules at sea for a very long time you mm-hmm. know and they got used to doing it in the Apollo era mm. and when they were doing Skylab flights and so on but that was a long time ago and yeah been flying
0: shuttles since then yeah, 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 yeah.
1: landing them yeah, yeah interesting. That, that's a whole different world mm. and they're going back to dropping these things into the ocean mm. rather than doing the Russian thing of having a pretty hard landing on the steps and, you know... Cushioned by retro rockets at the last moment, but even so, you come to a quick halt, don't you? Yeah, you do. Well, everybody, every astronaut I've ever heard talking about it uses some variation on the phrase, it's like a car crash. (laughs) It's it's like being rear-ended by a truck, you know. It's not a soft landing. It's safe. You know that capsule is going to get you down safe, but it's a pretty hard landing. It's not comfortable. Well, let's hope that SpaceX
0: managed to have a very successful test mission. Watch out for it. I'll be tweeting about it. You'll read about it on the news. Because they intend to fly crew in Crew Dragon later in the year, and I think... Rather than SpaceX private astronauts, the first mission is actually NASA astronauts, if I've understood that correctly. We're going
1: to the International Space Station. Yeah, 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 well, this is the thing, you know, because one of the reasons that the US wants this capsule is that they don't want to rely on Russian rockets to get to the International Space Station. Mm. at the moment, that's the only way they can get up there.
0: Looking ahead, there's lots of traffic in space some of it with wheels on planets what do we call the moon it's not really a planet it's a satellite although there was someone who said that we should consider the earth moon as a two-planet system i was told that a long time ago don't know if that's strictly true but Mm. yeah a lot of traffic in space at the moment we're going to be following it here on gareth jones on speed oh
1: yeah
0: lando norris welcome to mclaren Thank you, Zach. I'm really looking forward to the new season. Listen, Lando, I I gotta say, your name, the only other person I've ever heard called Lando was Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. Are you named after him? No, it's just a coincidence, Mr. Brown. Lando is a traditional Italian name. Well, maybe you should be driving for Ferrari then. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, how's the new car coming along? Well, take a look at this. Here she is, the MCL 34. Wow, it's beautiful. I'm so excited that I'll get to race this car. Yeah, well, Renault have made a real step this year with the output level of the power unit. How about the rest of the car, though? Well, we're looking at significant performance gains in just about every area. Better chassis control, increased aero efficiency, and we've even geared the car towards being more robust in the midfield battles. In what way, Mr. Brown? Well, Lando, if you just push that black button on the steering wheel three times, look what pops up out of a secret hatch in the cockpit. Go on, try it right now. Okay. Wow!
1: My very own
0: lightsaber! Yep, that should help with the midfield battles with Nico the Hutt and Obi-Wan Kvyat. May the force be with you, Mr. Brown. And with you, Lando. And with you. Step Metro! We're at Jones on speed! Earlier on in the programme we were talking about the Chinese putting rovers on the moon, rather successfully on the far side of the moon as well as the near side, but... How does that compare to the achievements of the US space program, who have put a number of rovers on Mars very successfully over, ooh, let me think. The first one I remember, Sojourner, would have been about 2002 or something like that. Maybe it was even earlier. And I'm going to find out by asking the man on the other end of Skype at the moment, on speed listener and the Engineering camera uplink lead on opportunity and curiosity at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Doug Ellison, hi, man. Hi, great to speak to you guys. The last time we spoke, you were at the British Grand Prix with me. Yes. And you were British then, but you're not really British (laughs) anymore, are you?
2: I suddenly came over All-American just before Christmas. I successfully got through the citizenship process. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. You you are now a
0: citizen of Trump.
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not sure which post-apocalyptic wasteland I'm looking forward to more, the USA or post-Brexit Britain. Oh, I'm not (laughs) sure.
0: We should all go and live on Mars. A chat for another day. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And I think the work that you're doing exploring Mars is actually paving the way. Doug, you're close to extraterrestrial cars... What's your impression of U2-1 and 2 and what the Chinese are doing on the moon now? It's absolutely incredible. I mean, it's something that the USA has never done,
2: which is a robotic rover on the surface of the moon. USA has never done it. The Russia did it with the Lunacod series 40 plus years ago. Yeah, And it's an incredible achievement. U2-1 didn't last too long. You know, the first time you try these things, you learn a whole bunch more than you ever expect to. And so U2-1 didn't last too long. But they've taken those lessons learned. They've managed to do something which no one has ever done and land on the far side of the moon. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you two, too, can actually get up to.
0: How does it compare, do you know, in terms of its technological ability, the engineering? How close is it to the sort of very sophisticated stuff that the US are now putting on Mars?
2: They bear a passing similarity to the older JPL rover's Spirit and Opportunity. They're about two-thirds the the size of Spirit and Opportunity, the YouTube series. They are solar-powered. There's not much in the public domain, but it appears they're using the same kind of mechanical design for their suspension system, you know, six-wheel drive, four-wheel steering. there's a cunning kind of articulating suspension called the rocker-bogey system that means you can drive over something up to the size of your wheels and not really notice that it's there. It keeps the the rover very stable as you go over lumps and rocks and dunes and what have you. Um, And uh, the solar panels are quite a lot smaller, because being so much closer to the Sun than Mars, you get about twice as much energy per solar panel you might put on a rover. And right now, as I understand it, U22 is actually taking a little siesta, because high noon on the Moon gets incredibly hot. And if they were actually using the rover, it might overheat. And so, in the lunar morning and the lunar afternoon, they can use the rover. But then they take a little siesta for a few days during high noon to avoid it overheating and so i think january 10th they said they'll
0: start using it again do the solar panels fold back to act as a reflective shield to bounce the heat away do you know i don't know if they fold up i do know they appear to
2: articulate kind of side to side so that they can catch the sun kind of in the eastern sky or the western sky depending on it's morning or evening I don't know if they kind of fold up like the old Russian Lunacod rovers did. I know that you know, the Lunacod rovers kind of hunkered down to survive the two-week-long lunar night, and that's a real engineering challenge. You know, you, you've got to survive a peak of maybe a hundred degrees centigrade during the middle of the day, but then you've got two weeks of minus one hundred and fifty, or even worse. And so they actually use a little technology that we have in Spirit and Opportunity as well, which is these little radioisotope heating units that trickle out just a couple of watts of heat. They're not used to make electricity. They just trickle out a couple of watts of heat. It's kind of like a survival heater. And that's just enough to keep the electronics from freezing to death through a two-week-long lunar night.
1: You said a moment ago that there wasn't that much information out in public about the mission. I know from some writing work I was doing a couple of years ago that getting information about the Chinese space program whether it's robotic missions or their crewed operations is very hard they seem to be much more reluctant than NASA or the European Space Agency to talk about what they do. As a space insider do you find it as hard to get information about what they're doing? And do you think that's a fair thing to say? I mean
2: it's absolutely fair. It's in- NASA's founding charter from 60 almost years ago was the phrase that NASA was obliged to share its findings to the widest extent possible with the public. Like, we are obliged in the way that NASA was formed To share what we do. If you land a rover on Mars and no one sees it, did it ever happen, right? You've got to share this stuff with the public. And to their credit, the Chinese Space Agency did release all of the imagery from the lander and the rover several years ago, eventually. They released all that calibrated data and it's out there and anyone can look. There's about 700 and something images and they look great. But NASA itself is actually legally forbidden from collaborating with China. We're not allowed to in any way, shape or form. But I think there's a little bit online about the design of the rover and there's a few lessons learned from the older U-2-1 rover. But many of us are pretty much in the dark, using what we know about spacecraft in general and trying of projecting it onto what little we can
0: see of U-2-2. The Mars rovers, Opportunity and Curiosity, Opportunity's been not heard from for, what, three or six months now, is that right?
2: Yeah, a little over six months, yeah. We got hit by a gigantic dust storm last summer and it was probably the most ferocious dust storm that's been seen in kind of the modern era of Mars exploration. It it hit hard and it hit really fast. It took us all by surprise. And for a solar powered rover, a really, really intense dust storm means no electricity. And so the rover would have put itself into a self-induced electrical coma, basically. And as a dust storm abates, that dust has got to go somewhere and it ends up on your solar panels. And so we've probably got a very dusty rover that now needs to get cleaned. Now, We have been cleaned in the past, and typically we've been cleaned in summer, kind of early autumn time in Martian seasons, and that time period is about now. And so we're hopeful that maybe Mars will be kind and clean off the solar panels, the rover will start charging up its batteries, and it may phone home. As it stands now, we've got the resources to keep shouting at her and keep listening for her until the end of this month, and NASA headquarters have said that they will let us take all reasonable efforts to try and recover opportunity. If we don't hear from her again, she went down fighting. Mars decided that it was game over, and we got more than 14 years out of a rover that was designed to last 90 days, so that's not too shabby.
1: You said earlier that the Chinese had done a very impressive thing in operating robotic craft on the Moon, which NASA hadn't themselves hadn't done, but just tell us what are the major challenges in designing and building a rover to operate on the Moon or on Mars? You know, because a, a naive mind might think, I could get a radio-controlled car, bolt a couple of solar panels to it, stick a camera on it and drop it on the Moon, and that would probably work. I mean,
2: yeah, <laughs> that'd be fine, that'll be work. Ill- <laughs> <laughs>
1: <we're>, <laughs> (laughs) 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 Why wouldn't that work? How do you do it properly? What are the challenges?
2: I'll start at Mars, because that's a little harder. At Mars, while you'd love to sit at a desk with a joystick and drive the thing around, when Mars and Earth are their closest, even at the speed of light, radio signals take a little over four minutes, and when they're on the opposite sides of the solar system, about 20 minutes, just to get from Earth to Mars. And then it takes the same amount of time for the signal to come back. Now, what that means for a Mars rover is that we can't joystick it. What we do actually is when the rover wakes up every morning, we send it one big batch of commands in one big lump and we send it direct to the rover. It has a small satellite dish type thing that can receive signals straight from Earth. And then we won't hear from the rover for four, five, six hours. And it just goes about doing its thing. You know, we've given it a to-do list. It does it. Maybe it's taking pictures. Maybe it's using the robotic arm. Maybe it's driving. And then maybe after we've driven, it's taking more pictures to figure out where we are or where we might go next. And then we get the data back actually through our relay orbiters. They go all the way back to 2001. Mars Odyssey, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, MAVEN, and even the European ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. We actually send data up at UHF frequencies from the rover. In these short kind of 12 minute relay passes up to the orbiters the orbiters then send the data home to us here we look at the data and then the rover goes to sleep at night it doesn't matter if you're solar powered or if you're nuclear powered there's not much you can do at night and if you're solar powered being awake at nights is a really bad thing with the curiosity rover that's much bigger badder, shinier more toys and nuclear powered it's nuclear battery only it actually kind of acts like a trickle charge and if we turn the rover on for a whole day it would flatten its battery And so at night we turn it down to kind of trickle charge its primary battery from the radioisotope junk in the trunk. And then we've got the Martian night shift to decide what to do with the rover the next day. And then the rover wakes up and we have to send it new commands.
0: Martian days are similar to Earth days, aren't they? 25 hours, isn't it? It's about 24 hours and 40 minutes. It's Ah. a little bit
2: longer. Just awkwardly enough longer. (laughs) That, let's say, we had to have commands ready at 4 o'clock this evening to send to Curiosity, for example. Well, tomorrow that would be 4.40, and then it would be 5.20, and then it would be 6 o'clock, and two weeks from now, that would be 4 a.m., and then two weeks from then, it would be back at 4 p.m., but somehow magically you've lost an entire day. So early on in these missions, we work on Mars time, where we work the Martian night shift. The rover sends the data home, goes to sleep. We get up, decide what to do the next day, and have the commands ready for when the rover wakes up the following morning. But that tends to kind of clash with... Real life, getting <laughs> kids bet. to school or whatever, <laughs> right? So you only do it for about three months before you start going a bit nuts. Yeah. So after that, if the Martian night shift happens to coincide with Pacific time, we will operate the rover every single day. When it doesn't, when it goes out of sync, and actually where we are right now, the way the two clocks have lined up, we do a thing called restricted planning, where we all just plan on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we plan two days of activities in one go. And so, for example, today is a Tuesday. We planned yesterday, and we did two days of activities. When we start planning tomorrow on Wednesday, we will have the data from the first day of Monday's plan, but not the second day. Right. And so the second day is somewhat in the blind. And so you only really get kind of three planning cycles per week. But when the clocks line up, we actually operate there over five days a week. We always give it three days of stuff to do on a Friday so we can all go home and have a weekend
0: now you have rotating sort of opportunities if I can use that term really where things line up and you seize that opportunity so so,
2: So this Friday we will be about to come out of restricted planning and in the the middle of next week we will then swap back to normal planning and the way the clocks kind of snap back almost in line with one another for a few weeks we will actually start planning pretty early on next Wednesday, Thursday, Friday kind of instead of a nominal 8am start we'll probably start at 6.30 then 7.30 and then 8 o'clock and then towards the end of that time we then start planning a little bit later and then we go back into restricted between. So
1: this is one of these kind of niggling small challenges of space operations <laughs> rather than one of the major challenges of space operations.
2: It's the kind of under spoken about human challenge of operating something that's robotic on another planet. The other planet doesn't give a damn what time it is.
1: But it has to be operated by a team of people who have to work effectively yeah. in order that the whole yeah. thing works.
2: Yeah, we actually went to great lengths to give the rover plenty to do over the Christmas break, so everyone could go home and spend Christmas with their families. And it was still sending data back all the time, but all these relay passes were still happening. Then we came back after Christmas, looked at the data and said, right, now what do we do?
0: It strikes me that the Mars rovers, your current Mars rovers, are kind of like children i know that we've instilled personality in them because you give them commands you say today i want you to go and do this set of activities explore a certain amount of space pick up a bit of dust examine it and then report back to us take some pictures and it goes off and it does it it comes back dad i've done those whereas the chinese rover at the moment i forgot the name of the crater what's the name of the crater it's in crema or something like that um anyway von carmen Von Karman, thank so, you. Yes, yeah, so Von
2: Karman, which is actually one of the founders of JPL.
0: Of course, I knew and had forgotten this. But <laughs> it strikes me that the Chinese rover is a lot more hands-on. They're joysticking it pretty much live, or does it have any autonomy? Do you know?
2: I think it has some level of autonomy. What I've been able to read about the, the first U2 rover is that it's not quite a joystick. I mean the old Lunacod rovers were driven with like super low resolution video at like four frames per second or something and driven like a tank. Wow. <laughs> and highly stressed Soviet engineers were sat there with all their managers staring over their shoulders while they tried not to get the priceless rover stuck in a crater. With you two, and I believe this is actually a similar operational kind of method that we actually planned with a rover that NASA was going to send to the moon called the Lunar Prospector. You basically say Okay, go 10 meters over there, and then you watch it go 10 meters over there. And then you look at the data from that location, and you take a few minutes to decide where you're going to go next. And then you say, okay, well, now go four meters over there. And so it's almost like kind of point and click. The one-way light time goes from between four and 20 minutes down to about a second. It's a little bit longer because being on the far side of the moon, it actually uses a relay satellite they launched last year to bounce signals from the far side of the moon up to the relay satellite and then back down to the Earth. But it's kind of point and click. It's like, okay, rover, now go over here and off the trundles. Um, if it was driving flat out, it would actually have about the same rate of progress as our Mars rovers. And if we turn off all the safety checks and turn off all of the hazard avoidance, we can do about 150 meters in an hour flat out. We never normally do more than about 50 metres in a single day, but if we were feeling crazy we could do about 100 and 150 metres in, in a single day.
0: We could actually have an extraterrestrial Grand Prix a theoretical one where we could imagine the performance of U2 two, 2 against Curiosity and see who would win. So hey. the Mars Rovers win at the moment? Are you quicker? I think U2 would be slightly faster. I think it's a little bit faster. The next Mars Rover that we're
2: building Mars 2020, which imaginatively launches in hopefully 2020, actually has a a whole extra circuit board of processing power so that when it's driving, it won't actually have to pause to check for hazards. What it will do is drive a little bit, grab a set of pictures, and then drive a little bit more. And while it's doing that driving, analyze those pictures, see if it's safe to carry on, and then stop, take more pictures. And so essentially it's thinking whilst driving and it takes away the downtime as we do each little incremental drive. So it means that our actual theoretical maximum range in a given day, it's actually the kind of mechanical performance of the vehicle rather than the computing performance of the vehicle. With something like U2 on the moon, you take that analysis and you just put it on humans on the ground and they go, okay, let's go over here. And you wait a few minutes and it gets there. You go, okay, now let's go over here. They had to stop early with U2-1, but I'm really looking forward to seeing just how brave and how far send you two too, because it could do several kilometres from the lander. It could go really exploring off into the wild
0: grave yonder. Wow, it's like the Paris-Dakar. That's how I see it. (laughs) Um, I know that the Chinese lander is pretty oversized for the size of the rover that sits on top of it. I know that they've developed this lander which will also work for a sample return mission within the next year or two. And beyond that, possibly... Crude landings on the moon but i think that's some way off just yet so the chinese program is ambitious and intriguing tell me about the mars 2020 rover is it bigger than the present rovers has it got a name yet and how excited are you about it and are you working on that one
2: so I'm not working on 2020 yet. Hopefully I'll get to work on it at some point in the future. I do kind of mission operations, and so hopefully they'll come calling after it's landed and say, hey, do you want to help us operate this new shiny toy of ours? It looks a little bit like a cut-and-shut job of Curiosity. The chassis looks very similar. The mobility system is pretty much the same, but it's got slightly upgraded wheels. We're kind of running a couple of flat tires, for want of a better phrase, on Curiosity right now. Are they broken but spokes? The weird thing with tires on Mars are actually made of metal. The hub, the rim, I should say, is titanium, these gorgeous titanium spokes. And then the actual wheel itself is an incredibly thinly machined piece of aluminium. They cost about $20,000 each. Wow. (laughs) And Gale Crater, where Curiosity lives, kind of caught us by surprise. We know Mars has rocks, right? That's not a surprise. What we weren't expecting is quite hard, quite pointy, jaggedy rocks embedded in other rocks sat there like some sort of Mars wheel torture test. And so it started ripping holes in some of the wheels in Curiosity. We've come up with some techniques for reducing the pressure of the wheels on the ground. We've essentially implemented a sort of traction control that as some wheels are climbing over an obstacle, we back off the rotation rate of the other wheels so we're not pushing wheels into hazards with the other wheels as we're driving. So 2020 gets a new, shiny, better upgraded wheels. It has new instruments mainly dedicated to identifying documenting and then collecting samples that we hope to return to Earth in the future. It is essentially a sample caching mission. But it's also got a couple of other really cool tricks. One is the engineering cameras, what I use on Curiosity, they are one megapixel and black and white. They're pretty old school, Instagram friendly, but they don't make great <laughs> massive posters. We're upgrading those just a little bit for the 2020 rover and so the engineering cameras will now be over 20 megapixels and color.
1: Yeah, big change.
2: Um, yeah big change it's a major upgrade and we're also bringing along a little friend And the 2020 rover will land with a small mars helicopter stuck to its belly nice and after we've done some initial rover checkout we will actually then drop the little helicopter off we'll drive away and then the helicopter will do some checkouts and then it will do a few short kind of engineering demo flights it's got a camera on board and it can fly for a couple of minutes at a time and then the helicopter will send the data to the rover the rover will send the data from there up to one of the orbiters the orbiter will send it down to the ground and we'll be able to see what the helicopter got up to. And it's an engineering test in the exact same way that Sojourner, our very first Mars rover back in 1997, was an engineering test. Yeah, 97. It was July 4th, 97 that Mars Pathfinder carrying little Sojourner landed. And Sojourner was an engineering test. It didn't do much science. But it proved that, hey, we can do rovers on another planet. And the helicopter is in the same vein. It's like, hey, let's see if we can do aeronautics on another planet. Let's take a little helicopter with it.
0: Is the helicopter a twin concentric rotor? Or is it a twin, like a Chinook? Or is it a Cor- conventional option,
1: a large right, rotor with a tail rotor?
2: It's one axis, but with counter-rotating blades. So right. imagine stacking the both ends of a Chinook on top of one another.
1: Yeah, Which is kind of a little bit like some of those actually quite cheap little remote control drones that you can buy for less than a tenner now, I mean uh, and, yeah, they're and fly really, around a really, living room.
2: Pretty really crappy helicopters that you crash into your curtains. Exactly, looks, yeah, yeah. Like that, but slightly more expensive, and we've actually taken up we've got a 25 foot wide space simulator here, it's a giant vacuum chamber and we have sucked all the air out and then put a little bit of carbon dioxide back in again to replicate Martian atmospheric conditions, which is incredibly thin atmosphere on Mars, about 1% density of ours, and we have taken some of the stuff out to make it lighter because on Mars it'll weigh only about a third of what it does here on Earth. And it flies. It makes one hell of a noise because it's got very aggressive airfoils on its blades and they spin really fast. But it flies. It works.
0: Does it land on the rover and recharge? It's reusable, more than one mission.
2: So it has a tiny solar panel on the top. So basically it can do one day, it can go and do a flight and the next day it'll sit there and trickle charge its battery back up again. I believe one of the algorithms it has on board is that it's measuring the signal strength between itself and the rover in real time. And if the signal strength gets too high, if the rover sounds too loud, it will land because like, oh no, I don't wanna get too close to the rover. I don't want to break the big thing that delivered me, right? I'm only a little engineering test. I'm gonna go and fly away over here somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I can't get too close to the rover.
0: Doug, one final question. Do you have a name for this rover yet? Any suggestions?
2: Not yet. NASA, a couple of months ago, put out a request for organizations to run a naming contest for the rover and for the helicopter. And organizations like the Planetary Society or LEGO even have got involved in naming of all our previous rovers. Sojourner was named with an essay writing contest. So was Spirit and Opportunity. So was Curiosity. Curiosity was was named by a schoolgirl who's since gone on to be an intern here at JPL and I think she went on to Harvard and so there'll be a naming contest the rover will get a proper name and once we get her on our way to Mars she'll develop some sort of personality and we'll see how it plays out
0: I would throw my suggestion into the ring at this stage. I think the rover could be called Bowie and I think the helicopter could be called (laughs) Ziggy. That would work. (laughs) Looking for life on Mars, amongst other things. Doug, I can't thank you enough, man. What a pleasure talking to you. Can we talk to you again as we get closer to the launch of the 2020 mission? Absolutely, I'd love to. And we'll Look sum up the success of U22 at some point as well.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to see what they get up to with that rover. It looks like an awesome mission.
1: That was fantastic. <laughs>
0: Hiker's Guide to the Ford Galaxy. The guide says that the Ford Galaxy is the second most spacious vehicle ever built by the Ford Interdimensional Motor Company from the planet Detroitus. The most spacious vehicle they ever built was the Ford Cosmos, which utilised New Edge of Space Time technology to enable it to be ever so slightly larger on the inside than it was on the outside. This clever sci-fact trick was of course stolen by a race known as the Terry Nations, and led to a long-running, if not somewhat implausible, BBC television series. The Ford Galaxy, however, was quite generous with space. Indeed, the marketing slogan used to launch the vehicle was Space is the ultimate luxury. Space is the ultimate luxury. This, of course, is misleading because, as we all know, the ultimate luxury is gold-plated caviar toilet paper. And someone to use it for you. Famously voluminous, the Ford Galaxy could swallow an entire Arcturian mega whale and still have enough room for the mother-in-law in the third row of seating, just as long as she didn't mind the smell of rotting cetacean meat. One of the things that the guide is quick to point out is that the Ford Galaxy isn't a Ford at all. It is in fact a product of Volkskraft, a company set up by galactic despot Adlof Hilter. Despite being one of the most fascist of spacecraft manufacturing races in the known universe, Volkscraft's products were universally recognised for being solid, dependable, well-built and outstandingly dull. The original premise of Volkskraft to mobilize an entire planet with a simple machine that looked like a Venusian conch shell, was a noble and simple idea, which only caught on because the people of their mother planet, Deutscheter, were utterly broke after losing the first galactic war. Aww. And frankly, would have driven anything given half a chance. Still, losers can't be choosers, as they say, and so the original Volkskraft caught on, making the company one of the biggest manufacturers in the entire Alpha Quadrant, most of the Beta Quadrant, and pockets of Brazil. It was because of this huge success that the Ford Interdimensional Motor Company were obliged to form a partnership with Volkskraft. to co-develop the vehicle that would become known as the Galaxy. Many names were considered during the gestation period. The Aero, the Double Decker, the Bounty. But the partners ultimately settled on the Galaxy as the name for the Ford version. And Volkskraft decided their version would be called the Volkskraft Charon named after the largest moon of Pluto. There was a last-minute call from the chief executive of Ford to call the car the Ford Perfect. But that name was thought to be rather misleading considering Ford's somewhat patchy reliability record. Space, as they say, ...is big, and the Ford Galaxy is a big car. Not as big as the Caddy Galactic Escalator... ...which is a car so big it can only be driven on planets roughly 11 times the mass of Jupiter and Saturn combined. And as a result, this car is so fuel inefficient, it's responsible for the collapse of five civilizations, whose entire GDP was eaten up in one trip to the chemists. Space is, in fact, expensive. As the people of the planet Clark discovered when they attempted to straddle the area of dead space with the catchy title of... The Great, Grand, Large, Vacant, Void, Hollow, Cold, Black, Dark, Desolate Expanse. This is a region of space which is, as you might have already guessed, somewhat on the empty side. The emptiness presented a rather lucrative business opportunity to a race known as the BP who established a service station exactly in the centre of the great, grand, large, vacant, void, hollow, cold, black, dark, desolate expanse and started supplying space fuel to any passing or other stranded customers at a somewhat extortionate price. The cost they charged for the fuel was so great that the huge debt struck up by the people wishing to fill up their fuel tanks is thought to have generated economic ripples so far through time and space that it was this that caused the subprime mortgage crisis and economic collapse of major banks on Earth in the early noughties. (coughs) Space is expensive and we are still paying for it. It was the realization of this that gave the Ford Interdimensional Motor Company the idea of making a car that offered value for money, or rather universal credits. This bucked the trend for small expensive sports cars like the bugatti Vary, a car which at 8 billion trillion million shillings per nanometer was the second most expensive space car ever sold. The most expensive vehicle ever was, of course, the Mark I Lotus Esprit. Initially, not that pricey to purchase, but oh, the constant repair bills! <laughs> Still, the Galaxy was an economical car, cheaply developed, thriftily engineered, and built by people from the planet Espaniolon, where labor costs were even lower than the quality of the construction. This didn't stop the galaxy from becoming astronomically popular. Dads liked it because it was big. Mm. Mums drove it because it was bigger than their neighbour's car. And the intergalactic private hire company Zadison Leetron bought galaxies in their thousands. What? Consequently, the Galaxy was voted the car most likely to transport someone on an expense account from the Solar Broadcasting Corporation. Broadcasting across the cosmos, apart from viewers in Wales who have their own program. The Galaxy won this award from the year 3095 until 3099 when the Poyote Trius won that mantle. And so, from this, we learn something. As Professor Bryanthal Coxtron, the Professor of Transdimensional Physics at the Slagdenim, Imperator granthnagel University of Salford III, once put it, got... Plato, Prada, Nike, what he was trying to say was we are but flickering moments in the existence of the universe. In other words, some vehicles shine very brightly for a short time and then ultimately fade from existence, whilst others such as the Vauxhall Supernova Lacoste edition will probably continue to exist long after intelligent life has completely vanished from everywhere in the cosmos. Just about it from Gareth Jones on speed. Don't worry, it's not going to be all space from now on. Even if it's cars in space, we will be doing land. We'll be back vehicles.
1: down to earth uh, next time. Yes,
0: actually, yeah, <laughs> and hopefully so will Richard to join yeah. us when he's returned from. He's at the pole at the moment. He's uh, up in the Arctic. Arctic
1: oh, well, Arctic Circle. I wasn't sure where, yeah. whether how close he's getting to the pole, but well, he, he can tell us when he's back.
0: Yeah, we'll find out all about that. And the fourth member of the On Speed team, the wonderful Sarah. She's at the other end of the planet. Still down under. Isn't she, she is. Yes. Quite literally, down and under in the underlands of Australia, but she'll be back to be with us soon as well. Excellent. Motorsport, there's plenty going on at the moment. In fact, this weekend, second race in the 2018-2019 Formula E calendar. You caught a bit of the last yeah, race, yeah.
1: I love the look of the new cars, but I wasn't wild about that circuit. And the biggest impression of that race for me was that I mean, first of all, it, you know, it looked like a rather desolate. Construction site <laughs> with not very many people watching the race. It was um, it wasn't great Yeah, it yeah. was. But so, the cars uh, are good and the racing is
0: good. But I believe this race at Marrakesh this weekend is on a proper circuit where the World Touring Cars, or it's now called WTCR, is that right? But it's a proper race circuit. They raced there recently, and the support race, of course, is the Jaguar
1: I Challenge. And just back on the formulary thing, what are your thoughts, just very briefly, on the attack mode that's now available? Yeah. Yeah. Is it a bit too much of a video game gimmick or mm. is it good for the race?
0: I've got to get over my prejudices, I think. We've all got to get over that. Do we- the, the idea that motorsport can take its influences from the virtual environment is quite a brave and interesting thing how it really changed the race i couldn't really say it gave everyone an equal advantage At some point, did others use it better than others? It wasn't that clear to me. So I think it will evolve and develop in its functionality. These are early days for us. I mean, you can make the case... I don't dislike it. it. You can
1: make the case that it's another tool in your box to deploy during a race. Yeah, and to develop. Uh, But I'm not convinced that it's not just a bit gimmicky. Well,
0: Uh, Formula E is a formula in development, in my opinion. It's made a huge stride recently. The second-gen cars and the racing is a step up, that I'm allowing them to try all sorts of crazy experimental things. And if it doesn't work, okay, that's part of the journey. Watching them get stuff right and get stuff wrong is part of the backstory. I should be watching this weekend on the Red Button, on the BBC Red Button, live Saturday.
1: Let's hope for a good race.
0: Yeah, you've been listening to Gareth Jones on Speed. Thanks to Doug Ellison for taking part. And I hope you enjoyed Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He's Zog. Goodbye. I'm Gareth And live long and prosper. That's what you say in a space show, isn't it?
1: It is, and we're doing the correct Vulcan salute. You
0: can't actually see it, but we are holding our hands. What's the matter with us, you think? (sighs) Children, are we? What (laughs) geeks? We're going to leave you with a tune, and because Doug Ellison mentioned LunarCod, the Soviet lunar rover of the 70s, here's a song which has appeared on On Speed before. The version you've heard before will be a version in the style of Gary Newman. But this is the original version, in the style of our Teutonic electronic futurist band, Kraftverst. Enjoy.